Episode 77, Church History Part 33. The Roman Empire became the Roman Catholic Christian Church by the orders of Christian emperors and the papacy, which formed an irrevocable union many centuries old. Europeans would break from the Roman Catholic Christian Church to form the Protestant movement and the monarchs, Church of England, or Anglicanism. You have the Roman Catholic Christian Church, the Protestant movement, and the monarchs, Church of England. The slave trade has carried our people all through the Atlantic, and of course, to Turtle Island, renamed the United States. Europeans of the Protestant movement have migrated there, and the English monarchs, land stillers, are there as well both colonizing the land and using slaves as freed labor to build the American economy. The Puritans or followers of the Protestant movement became the Congregationalists and those following Anglicanism were able to do whatever they wanted, allowing different religions to emerge. There were so many different beliefs and no sole governing body to force a certain religion on anyone. Thus, it was a free-for-all. The word denomination was used to call the different religious groups popping up all over the place. Whatever your beliefs were, you would form your church by campaigning or evangelizing people to listen and follow you. This is the 18th century. History.com states, The Great Awakening was a religious revival that impacted the English colonies in America during the 1730s and 1740s. The movement came at a time when the idea of secular rationalism was being emphasized and passion for religion had grown stale. Christian leaders often traveled from town to town, preaching about the gospel, emphasizing salvation from sins, and promoting enthusiasm for Christianity. The result was a renewed dedication toward religion, not Yah, but religion. Many historians believe the Great Awakening had a lasting impact on various Christian denominations and the American culture at large. In the 1700s, a European philosophical movement known as the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason was making its way across the Atlantic Ocean to the American colonies. Enlightenment thinkers emphasized a scientific and logical view of the world while downplaying religion. In many ways, religion was becoming more formal and less personal during this time, which led to lower church attendance. Christians were feeling complacent with their methods of worship, and they were delusioned with how wealth and rationalism were dominating culture. Many began to crave a return to religious piety. Around this time, the 13 colonies were religiously divided. Most of New England belonged to congregational churches or Puritans. The middle colonies were made up of Quakers, Anglicans, Lutherans, Baptists, Presbyterians, the Dutch Reformed, and the congregational followers. Southern colonies were mostly members of the Anglican Church, but there were also many Baptists, Presbyterians, and Quakers. The stage was set for renewal of faith. And in the late 1720s, a revival began to take root as preachers altered their messages and re-emphasized concepts of Calvinism. We learned Calvinism is a theology that was introduced by John Calvin in the 16th century that stressed the importance of scripture, faith, predestination, and the grace of God. And we also learned in prior episodes that predestination was not taught by Isaiah. Grace is to be delivered from sin and not a reason to sin. Big difference.
the Tennant family, the Great Awakening began by a plethora of people like the Tennant family who were Episcopalians from Ireland or Scots-Irish immigrants, but changed to the Presbyterian denomination. William Tennant found the Log College in Pennsylvania where they trained Presbyterian ministers, and he was a charter trustee of the College of New Jersey, known today as Princeton University. Slavery.princeton.edu states, Many faculty members of the College of New Jersey owned slaves during the first century of the college's history. Joseph Treat, David Cowell, William Tennant, and Ebenezer Pemberton were charter trustees, tutors of the college, and slaveholders. The Tennant family were known for their fiery messages to sinners to repent. Gilbert Tennant even compared anti-revival ministers to the biblical Pharisees. Thus, the Tennant revivals were a major factor in the start of the Great Awakening and had an impact on many European immigrants, such as the Puritans and the Baptists of New England. Professor Kristen Herman for National Humanities states, By the 1740s, the clergymen of these churches were conducting revivals throughout the region using the same strategy that had contributed to the success of the Tennants. Who were these clergymen? Jonathan Edwards. Most historians consider Jonathan Edwards, a Northampton Anglican minister, one of the chief fathers of the Great Awakening, per history.com. Edwards' message centered on the idea that humans were sinners. God was an angry judge and individuals needed to ask for forgiveness. He also preached justification by faith alone. In 1741, Edwards gave an infamous and emotional sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. News of the message spread quickly throughout the colonies. Edwards was known for his passion and energy. He generally preached in his home parish, unlike other revival preachers who traveled throughout the colonies. Edwards is credited for inspiring hundreds of conversions, which he documented in a book, Narratives of Surprising Conversions. Professor Herman says, in emotionally charged sermons, all the more powerful because they were delivered extemporaneously. Preachers like Jonathan Edwards evoked vivid, terrifying images of the utter corruption of human nature and the terrors awaiting the unrepentant in hell. And these teachings were the start of the fire and brimstone preaching. Slavery.princeton.edu states, The Princeton president with the shortest tenure was also one of the most famous in the school's history. Theologian Jonathan Edwards served as president of what was then the College of New Jersey for only 35 days in 1758 before succumbing to smallpox. Yet, the renowned minister's brief association with Princeton illustrates how the major intellectual currents of colonial America permeated the campus. Furthermore, the ambivalence Edwards expressed towards slavery, even as he engaged in the practice throughout his adult life, illustrates how Princeton's leaders recognized but failed to confront the moral abomination of slavery in the college's early years. In Edwards' family, in colonial North America, more generally, white men exercise authority over dependent wives, children, servants, and enslaved Africans and Native Americans. 
young Edward's nuclear family owned a slave, as did the households of many New England clergymen. Ministers often purchased slaves to signal their elevated social status as a means of earning supplemental income by renting out the enslaved person's labor and to compensate for the fact that clergy engaged in less physical labor at home than other patriarchs. Wait a minute, you're enslaving our people, then turning around and, and renting us out to other people and Europeans as if we're some type of machine. This is beyond sick. George Whitefield, a minister from Britain, had a significant impact during the Great Awakening. Whitefield toured the colonies up and down the Atlantic coast, preaching his message. In one year, Whitefield covered 5,000 miles in America and preached more than 350 times, per history.com. His style was charismatic, theatrical, and expressive. Whitefield would often shout the word of God and tremble during his sermons. People gathered by the thousands to hear him speak. Whitefield preached to common people, slaves, and Native Americans. No one was out of reach. Even Benjamin Franklin, a religious skeptic, was captivated by Whitefield's sermons, and the two became friends. Whitefield's success convinced English colonists to join local churches and re-energized a once waning Christian faith. Molly Wharton, an associate professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, had this to say about George Whitefield. He had a charisma that electrified his listeners, and he capitalized on that. He relied on public opinion, not the church hierarchy, to make him a celebrity. He developed a sophisticated ad campaign, and when he planned to preach in a town, his advanced men would be there ahead of time, drumming up interest. More important, his revival centered on the individual experience of the new birth. Whitefield's tactics was not to convince you to obey church authority, but to persuade you that if you, the individual, would simply recognize your sins and open yourself up to grace, you could be saved. He put aside the thorny problem of predestination. Wherever he went, he was controversial. Now, he was not a social radical. His message was not pro-democracy or overly political. He endorsed slavery, probably because he wanted to be able to preach in the South. Okay, John Wesley, KeenanPreppers.org states, because of Whitefield and others, the preaching did extend well into the American South, where separate Baptists began to emerge. Fear was used to draw tens of thousands to Christianity. Whitefield soon allied with John Wesley, a prominent Anglican-English theologian and evangelist, in an attempt to reform the Church of England. But this resulted in a revival moment within the church that was led primarily by Wesley. It was known as Methodism and is the foundation for the Methodist Church. So the Methodist denomination is a branch of the Anglican Church which itself is a direct offshoot of Catholicism. John Wesley also disagreed with Martin Luther and John Calvin on the subject of Christian conversion. While he believed in what theologians called justification by faith, he did not believe in predestination. He believed and taught that any sinner could receive the grace of Elohim, not just the elect. 
But Wesley put a Methodist spin on what theologians called sanctification and made it his own. He believed once a born-again Christian is converted, then he goes through a process of sanctification. Holiness, an international journal of Wesleyan theology, published Wesley House Cambridge states, Holiness seeks to be deliberately conversant with the Wesleyan Methodist theological tradition. It's globally competent in decolonizing an ethos, critically reflective on contemporary context, appropriately attentive to the praxis of holiness, and creatively expressive of the tradition while developing it through original research. What? Professor Wharton states, Sanctification gradually brings them to a state of Christian perfection, and their sinful urges are suppressed. Calvin and the Puritans believed in a sanctification process too, but the emphasis on Christian perfection was distinctly Methodist. Wesley even said that in some people, this sanctification could be almost instantaneous. And some of his followers came to believe that this so-called second blessing could make you perfectly holy and totally eradicate any trace of original sin. Also, John Wesley is claimed to have disagreed with slavery. But there was no certainty that Methodist pastors did not own slaves, especially since it was so prevalent in the 18th century and was a source of great wealth. UMnews.org states, while official statements from the General Conference and annual conferences were largely silent on abolitionism, there were resolutions supporting the colonization movement, which intended to remove free blacks from North America and settle them in Africa, primarily Liberia. It would not end slavery, but remove the freed slave from the United States. Okay. Professor Wharton concludes, the 18th century was the period when Puritanism, Scots, Presbyterianism, and other traditions merged into a common religious culture that we can call the American evangelicalism. And we can see their descendants in full operation today as the evangelicals. Wharton goes on, Something new and different happened here. Revival moments placed a new stress on individual connection with the divine. They questioned the old established state church model, and they involved a jostling of multiple groups in a new pluralistic context. So, with no governing body to control the colonizers, the different denominations, and the winds of doctrine of Christianity, it invaded whatever homes and hearts allowed them into. Again, we see the Roman Catholic Christian Church replicating itself in all these Christian denominations. There's no reference to the Torah, to Yah, Yesiah, and definitely they're not referencing the original Hebrew Israelites of the Torah, of the Bible, who they were enslaving to build their churches and homes, accumulate wealth, and literally create and build the American economy. This is the foundation of the Christian church, which came directly out of the Roman Catholic Christian church with the same people involved, the Europeans, descendants of Japheth and Esau, who have made their way now to Turtle Island or the Great Turtle to steal land from the natives and enslave our people, the Hebrew Israelites, to build it. John 7, 16. Isaiah answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. 1 John 4 and 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of Yah. 
because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the spirit of Yah. Every spirit that confesseth that Yesiah is come in the flesh is of Yah, and every spirit that confesseth not Yesiah is come in the flesh is not of Yah. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Ye are of Yah, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Isaiah 55 and 6. Seek Yah while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto Yah, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our Yah he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith Yah. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It should not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. My people, we have to hear from the Most High ourselves. Know his voice, know his ways, know his plans for ourselves. As we seek truth, please seek truth with us. Please send questions or comments to info at truthwars.com or comment here. We don't claim to know everything. We just seek the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that knows everything. Let truth roar. Let truth reign. Let truth speak. And let truth set you and your entire family free. Truth roars. Truth reigns. Truth speaks. Please see my podcast disclaimer at truthwars.com.